Yes, yes, yes. What's going down, people? Welcome to this week's episode of Echo Chamber. Um, yo, let's get into the UK box office top 10 for the weekend of the 16th to the 18th of August. At number 10, we have Casino Royale, which is the secret cinema screenings. At number 9, Spider-Man Far From Home. At number 8, Angry Birds Movie 2. At number 7, Blinded by the Light. At number 6, we've got Good Boys. At number 5, Toy Story 4. At number 4, Dora and the Lost City of Gold. At number 3, Fast and the Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. At number two, we got The Lion King. And in at number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We've got a review coming. Um, I think I'm going to put it out next week, I think. But it might be the week after. Who knows, people? It's all crazy. Uh, this week. Okay, so I had the pleasure of um, conversating with the great Navin Dev. Okay, so it's Navin Dev. At the beginning of the interview, I do, I think I called him Nevin Day. That's not his name. It's Navin Dev. And um, yeah, so I had the great pleasure of sitting down and um talking with him uh we did a great interview and then we talked for friggin hours afterwards it, it was a great day uh, so what i'm gonna do i'm gonna put out the zoo head review first so that first appeared in episode 36 which was part of the sci-fi london coverage so i'm gonna put that out and then we're gonna go into the interview Okay, but first we're gonna, you know what I mean, just a few little announcements. So let's get to those. Okay, people, um, this one's for all the horror fans. The Mastonic Institute of Horror Studies, London, announces its full lineup of lectures and events. Okay, so the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, the world's longest-running educational organization devoted to the study of horror history, theory, and production, is pleased to announce its full 2019 lineup of classes, led by some of the genre's world's most renowned critical, literary, and filmmaking luminaries. The Miskatonic London unleashes a heady fall semester that includes bad trips and psychedelia in the acid horror of the late 60s and early 70s. The corridor as a locus of angst and dread in horror film and fiction adaptations and mutations of the thing 
and a career talk by filmmaker Gary Sherman, moderated by filmmaker Sean Hogan, in collaboration with Wales Arbitoire Film Festivals. All classes at the regular branches are standalone events. Think a TED Talk, but with booze and horror. Though people can opt to buy a season pass for a discounted price. All information will be in the details of this episode. Okay, so, you know, um, this will be taking place at the Horse Hospital, uh, which is um, in Bloomsbury. So you've got advanced tickets of £12, on the door they're £15 um, and the In Conversation events are £17 in advance, £20 on the door. You can get a season pass which is four classes for £45. So um, yes, go to um, go to the episode and you can find out all of the uh you know all the eff- when all of this takes place but i'll give you the dates so thursday the 12th of september 7 till 10 the bad trip uh this is psychedelic horror cinema 1967 to 1972 and the instructor is james riley then Thursday the 24th of October 7 till 10 the corridor gothic with um instructor Roger Lockhurst and then Monday the 18th 7 till 10 live from the Misotonic Gary Sherman in conversation moderated by Sean Hogan uh so um yeah I think that's um oh and there's Thursday the twelfth of December seven till ten things from other worlds adapting transforming and translating the thing instructor Laura May so uh, yeah people they're all your dates now go to the episode for all the information and the links. Okay, so here is some interesting news that could help people who, um, you know, are looking to create something. So, now in its sixth year, B3 Media is looking for artists for its 29th edition of Talent Lab, an innovative creative development program aimed at BAME artists, writers creative producers and filmmakers who are ready to take their careers to the next level they are calling for applications from the individuals with a strong story to tell and a track record in film visual arts theater and digital storytelling b3 media is hoping to find 20 candidates with ideas to participate in a series of development labs in september 2019 
From this initial group, up to six projects will be commissioned. The selected filmmakers and artists will receive mentorship and development support between October and November 2019 with an opportunity to present their work at B3 Futures Creative Showcase in Central London in November this year. Talent Lab 2019's application closes on the 27th of August at midday. Author and filmmaker Nelson George is one of this year's mentors. George produced the critically acclaimed documentary The Black Godfather that recently premiered on Netflix. He also wrote and directed a uh, ballerina's tale a documentary about the world famous african-american ballerina misty copeland he was also executive producer and co-writer on the successful netflix series the get down created by director baz luman and paul witzer winning playwright stephen audley gurgis additionally Queen Latifah won the Golden Globe for playing the lead in George's HBO directorial debut, Life Support. Nelson George said this, I had an incredibly fulfilling creative experience working with the emerging talents at the Talent Lab last year. It was a diverse and forward-thinking group of content creators looking forward to meeting a vibrant new group of talented writer-directors. Talent Lab is supported by Screen Skills using national lottery funds awarded by the BFI as part of the Future Film Skills Programme and the University of Nottingham's Horizon Mixed Reality Lab. B3 Media is leading media arts network that understands the importance of representative storytelling. Talent Lab helps diverse artists take their careers to the next level by transforming raw ideas and stories into outstanding projects capable of garnering widespread acclaim through a program of workshops and bespoke support. The program also enables participants to gain greater exposure and recognition in their fields via carefully curated networks with a list of industry mentors. To find out more information and for the links to apply, check out the details of this episode via the link. And now it's time for this week's film sometimes you know going into some of these films at sci-fi london you just really don't know you have no clue but there's something that pulls you in and that was the case with navin dev's new film uh zoo head so navin wrote and directed the film. It's starring Daniel Armadi, Hussein Husina Raja, and Brian Porter Jr. The gist is this: unemployed and reckless, Charlie is addicted to zoots. 
drugs that cause memory deterioration, deja vus and delusions. He is a zoot head. Charlie is forced by his unemployment benefits advisor to attend an experimental rehabilitation program at Infinity, a memory clinic. The program involves memory looping. A zoo head is looped into a memory of theirs when they were once sober, allowing the mind to regress to its original state and heal any damages. Charlie undergoes the procedure at infinity, but it malfunctions. He dies. Charlie suddenly awakes and discovers that he is reliving the same day over and over again, although his delusions have increased. With help from his girlfriend Megan and tech guru Barton, Charlie rushes to escape repetitions of the loop as the line between reality and memories blur. Now, as I ask you, have you ever wondered what would happen if you crossed Groundhog Day, Train Spotting, and Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind? Well, you don't have to wonder anymore because Zoo Head is that film. This is this is crazy. And awesome. You know, it, it's a really good film. It just grabs you from the giddy up. This film grabs you and kind of forces you to look at things. And, and these weird kind of perceptions of, you know, drug use. And like all that comes with it. You know, just the kind of the um, yeah, the, just like what is it? You know, we're, we're seeing the character at the very beginning, just not in a good state. You know what I mean? Like at a very low situation, and you're just like, oh, you know, because. Look, we've seen programs about drug abuse and all of that. And, and, and it's not nice. Like, no one really wants to be in that shit. And seeing it, you know, people throwing up all over themselves, shitting themselves in cold sweats and everything like that. It's just, just kind of grim, right? I mean, that scene in Trainspotting with the toilet is just, ugh, and the bait, it's just foul. So, you know, that's the first thing we see, someone in this state. And it's like, oh, am I, am I meant to root for this character? You know what I mean? That, I think mean, that's the compelling part of this film. About, you know... Forcing you to, I guess, emphasize with someone who you probably have nothing in common with. Like, and there's no 
qualities that you could be like, all right, yeah, no, 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 I'm a bit like that. Or, yeah, I can see myself in that aspect of that person. You know, you're kind of just forced to try and understand. And so it makes you think about perception. You know, because that's the key thing here. It's the perception. Because we are given so many visuals. There's so much happening. Like some, you know, just the kind of the interpretation of delusion. I think it's handled extremely well. You know, I, it's, it's really good how we're seeing certain imagery over and over again, but it's always slightly tweaked. There's different kind of facets of these weird images. And I think that's something, that's delusion, man. You know what I mean? It's not always, like, a lot of the times when we see these things, it's like the same thing over and over again. But no, because the mind fucks with you. So you're not always seeing the same thing over and over again. But you're seeing different manifestations of that thing. And so that's the great thing. So we have our, our main character, Charlie. But then we've got Megan and Barton. And it's just like... All right, so how are they fitting into this? You know, like, why are they there? Why would they fuck around with this dude? Because he's fucked. He's a mess. Like, what is anyone getting out of this? And as the story unfolds, you're like, oh, you know, what is, is this reality? Because we're forced to then look at this situation. And you're suddenly, you, you start to notice these, these little glitches. And so you're wondering, okay, is this this? Or what is this? You know, like certain things are said, like, oh... But who's going to mother you? Oh, who's going to father? And so that, you're like, what, you know, what connection? What's the links here? And, th and this is what, you know, is, is handled so well. Like, Naveen really kind of orchestrates this whole thing, this whole trip, this whole weird reality and does it in a way that you don't lose track and you're always in it you're always wondering you know and and that's just so well done and now and the, you know the acting it's great like you you'd think daniel really was this just, you know, lower than low druggy, you know, and Bar and Barton is, um, you know, he he's just this weird kind of guy that you're, you, you know, you're just thinking, oh, is he helping or is he, you know, what's his angle and yeah. 
Hassani, he's playing Megan, he's just great as well, because, you know, at the beginning, you're just like, oh, is she just this, but then as the story is coming on, you're, you're seeing these different elements, and it's just like, how does this fit in, and then different portrayals to fit the different loot days, and that's the thing, like, you know, Brian Porter that plays Barton, it's a similar thing with him, you know, because we're getting these different days, these different loops that, you know, Charlie is having, and it's just, it's very well done, it is very well done, it's kind of interesting, because you think, it, it, you know, because it's like from the look of it you're just like is this just gonna be some weird mind trip fuck film you know am i really that interested you know because like train spotting was okay but there was just this yeah there's parts i just didn't connect with you know i didn't connect with and i didn't care but what was great here, I was so compelled to see how this would all turn out, you know, because I started to have ideas of, oh, I think I know where this is going, oh, is this, and then it's like, oh, it's not, hmm, okay, okay, well, maybe it's, and so you're, you're, you're trying to contemplate what is the story? Where is it going? How is this? So you're always in it, you know? You're always in it. And as I said, look, the way it was shot, the colours, the tones, you know, the different camera angles, all of it just helped you, you know, just get in this world, you know, get on with what was happening, like, you know, just suddenly feel this kind of connection and empathy for Charlie, and you're like, well, what? I'd never have that, and then suddenly you're like, shit, what's gonna happen, how's he gonna get out of this, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's zoo head, people, it's um it's a really interesting film. You know, it made its world premiere at Sci-Fi London. Um and again with all these films, you know, there's no no information on distribution. But pay attention to the information in the details of this episode, you know, follow the people, and, um, hopefully, you know, your, your distribution information will come up, and if we find out, we will definitely let you know as well, okay, so, um, yeah, that is Zoohead, by uh, Navin Dev. It's 80 minutes. 
So another, another well-paced and timed film that, yeah, you just don't get bored of. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you will get a chance to see it. Okay, people, so, yeah, so that was the review. So now here is the interview with um, Navin. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm here with Nevin D, who is the writer, producer, and director of Zoohead. Now, if that rings a bell, it's because I covered it in um, Sci-Fi London earlier in the year. And um, yeah, there's some big news. So... Uh, yeah, we, Nevin was happy enough to free up some time and we're going to have a little talk about the film, the news and um, yeah, filmmaking and the like. So Nevin, thank you very much for your time, man. Um, yeah, where should we start? All right, let, let's start off with the news. So tell people, yeah, it's the great news about Zoohead. Right. Um, thanks for having me, uh, Kevin. Um, yeah, so yesterday we premiered on Hulu uh, in the US, and yeah, it's massive news. That's courtesy of our sales agent, Movie House Entertainment, and distributor Q Media. So they've done a great job on the movie, um, and and yeah, so we're on Hulu. Um, so go watch it if you've got Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so is this like for a certain period of time, or are you just there now? Uh, it's two years to begin with. So yeah, that's, that's the, the deal, the licensing deal, two years. Nice. And, um, will they promote the film as well? Like, I, I, yeah, I don't know how, if they're similar to Netflix where they just kind of just put things out there. Um, I think... I'm I'm not sure. I think that it will just be the general. If you go to Hulu and you switch it on, it will be probably pretty much like Netflix, like recommended movies or something like that. But in terms of marketing, that's all us. That's that's uh, all all my production company just putting stuff out there as much as we can for for Zoohead. Right. Okay. Um. How long did it take to put this together? Because you know, so the film premiered in. Oh good, yeah, May, right? So it's you know been a been a few months. Like so, how long did it take to put this kind of together? Um, we I wrote this in two. So I had the script ready by two thousand fifteen. So November two thousand fifteen was when I finished the script, and we shot it in for two weeks in March two thousand sixteen. Um. So, and then from 2016 to 2000, I'm losing track of the years now. This is 2019, <laughs> right? So 2000, let's... I don't know, maybe this is a loop. I know, maybe it's 2020. <laughs> maybe it's 2099. Um, in 2018, we, it was done. So April 2018. So there was like a big haul period of, of post-production, of getting the edit right, of finding the right editor, um, and then eventually getting the cut that I was happy with. 
Um, and then 2018 is when uh, Movie House and David Marlowe and, and myself and the cast, we took it to Cannes. So we, we were in Cannes and that was great and we got a lot of good feedback with it. And then 2019 is when it premiered at Sci-Fi London, which was, oddly enough, the festival out of all, you know how like when you, you make a movie and you mm. submit it to all these festivals and it's like, no, 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 no. And I was just laughing in the back of my head going, I knew it was gonna be no, not in a cynical way, yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah. but it like, I don't know, I think it's God answering prayers because I was like, I, I remember when I was writing the script and I remember, I remember this. I told Louis this. I remember taking a break one day and just like, you know, bored out my head, just clicking on, on websites. And I went to Sci-Fi London. I was looking at the web page. I remember getting this heart tug thinking, oh, man, wouldn't it be so cool like to have this film premiere there? <laughs> and then I was like, get rid of the website because, you know, that's distracting you. Yes. And then cut to years later, I get that phone call in January of this year, Louis saying i just want to know the festival status of the movie i'm like oh my god <laughs> like don't do this to me and he's like well we'll let you know in a in a few weeks time if, if we're gonna accept it. i'm like please don't do this to me man <laughs> and then cut to like march or something he sends me an email saying yeah you know we we love the film and that was like that was it was a dream come true it was a dream come true i could not believe that we and 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 the screening at sci-fi london was so good it was so mm. well received it was a packed out screen um, and people, yeah, people got the film. That's that's. I think that's the beauty. That's that's the the satisfaction of a filmmaker is when they they understand the film, especially something like Zoohead, which is quite can be complicated. Yeah. But they got it. Yes, because there is probably a Donnie Darko kind of vibe to the film, um, in the sense that it's one of those things that you kind of you you can't just watch you have to think about what you're sitting because it's so comp there's complexity in the simplicity so yeah it's not a film that you can have on in the background while you're sending some emails and stuff like that like and i think that was the thing with donnie darko like people came out it's like i don't understand i'm gonna have to watch it again so yeah, having people actually come out going, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely must. And you, I think, were you at the weekend? Were you a weekend screening at Sci-Fi London? Uh, on which day did we screen? Yeah, we screened on a Monday night. Uh, so we screened at six thirty on Monday, Monday the twentieth of May. And and for Monday it was it was a packed out audience. That's what I was surprised by. Like because Sci-Fi London is so huge and they have so many real hardcore Sci-Fi fans, mm. you know, like guys in like Masters of the Universe T-shirts sitting up front. I'm like, <laughs> dude, that T-shirt looks so cool. Um, and 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 so you're like, oh man, these guys are gonna nitpick the film. But that's the audience you want, you know, oh, because I'm yeah. a geek and I want geeks to watch the film. And and. And, and, and they're getting it. So, for, yeah, for Monday, it was really packed out, and, and it was such a good audience. Um, but it's, you know what, intentionally, I, I just wanted to make a good movie. I remember when I was, you know, coming off my first feature film, which, like I was telling you earlier, it's, it was a very personal movie, Red Kingdom Rising. It was very much inspired by art house cinema. And me making my first feature, I was not, I was, I was naive. I was like, oh, I didn't know I had to market this thing. I just thought I'd make an art house movie and sell it. I don't know how. 
And yeah, our house doesn't sell, especially if you're no name director. It's like, what? You know, who's going to buy this? You know, like some girl who goes back home to relive a child's, uh, you know, abuse through this Alice in Wonderland. And it's inspired by films like Valerie and A Week of Wonders, which is an amazing film. Uh, but people don't know that movie, you know. And, and so I... And Red Kingdom Rising was very well received. It was a weird one because it was very well received academically. So you have these hardcore film critics that turned around and said, oh my God, this is a film that should be studied. And I was like, wow, okay. But I kind of wanted it to sell. I, I, I'm appreciative of that, but like, I'd like that's to get, that, yeah, I know, I know I need to, you know, man got to eat, right? Um, but man wasn't eating and I was like, wow, okay. And, and I made that completely on my own money. So it was Red Kingdom Rising was probably like, I think around 50K or something like that. So it took a lot. And, and any, any filmmaker would know this. You make a no budget from film. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. You know, a lot of filmmakers go never again. And I went into this limbo period for like, I think five years, four years later. And I was like, I'm not going to do a no, no, no budget film again. We'll just see what happens. But it kept gnawing at me. I was like, I really want to make another film. And then one day I was like, well, Navin, what do you want to make? I mean, you've done the art house thing. How about making a film that you would like sit back on a Friday night and go, yeah, this would be cool. Let me put this in the, in the Blu-ray player. And so that's where it began. I made, it was the first time I wanted to make a film that of, of the genre I'm a fan of, which is sci-fi. And I, oddly enough, even if I had a huge budget to make Zoohead or I had a huge budget to make a sci-fi movie, I wouldn't go, great, okay, guys, we're going to make Star Wars. Yeah. I, I've always veered towards grounded sci-fi. My favorite film sci-fi movie is Robocop, the Paul Verhoeven one, because apart from Robo walking around this tin suit and he looks like something out of the future. That film is set in the Reagan era. It yeah. is very much a social satire. It is so grounded, and the film beautifully deals with that, with those issues on this on this background of a sci-fi movie, of a sci-fi narrative. Oh, well, actually, some news on that. Neil Block have, has pulled out, so maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah, send him a screen or a zoo head and be like, I'm up, man. Because <laughs> I've got, uh, you know, going aside, I've got the perfect idea for Robocop. It would be Robocop 4 if you consider the third one part of canon. Oh, but, but no, I think the idea is... is to go yes, c- kill 2 season. and 3. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love 2 and 3 because, I mean, 2 is like pure Frank Miller, right? And 3 yeah. like, you know, 3 like, let's do the kid version of Robocop. <laughs> but you can still appreciate them. But, you know, yeah, I can see why he wanted to do straight sequel to 1 because 1 is like definitive Robocop. Yeah. But yeah, we, I, I was like, you know what, no matter what money I've got, I want to do something that's grand as sci-fi, very Philip K. Dick. And for me as a filmmaker, I just have a, I, I, I've got this passion with exploring themes of dreams and memories. It's something I did with Red Kingdom Rising, and it was something that I want to do with, with Zoohead. And it started with Charlie as a character, like, how am I going to get this guy who's a drug addict, who's, who's full of turmoil, and he goes through a cathartic journey, and at the end of that, he's healed. Mm. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. What if we took the idea of looping? 
So, and, and I think that's a reflection of life. Sometimes God will just make you go through the same experience over and over again until you get the friggin' idea. Like, like people who date the same person over and over and over again. It's like, are you happy now? Do you see the pattern? Wait, it's what like, do you, what do you mean? She's not like Rebecca. I know, I know. Oh, it's like, it's different. like, God, why do I keep dating yeah. the same chicks? It's like, you idiot. They're not the problem. You're the problem. You know, and that's the same thing with Charlie. And it was it was very much a reflection of life, like because life is very much like a loop anyway. I mean, the whole the whole thing of Monday to Sunday, right? Get up Monday, go to work, can't wait, can't wait to get pissed on a Friday night. And it's the same thing. And we live very looped lives. But I thought, yeah, let's let's take this genre of the loop, this Groundhog Day thing that is. And I think that's me playing it safe, too, as a filmmaker, because, you know, that a looped movie on the commercial surface of thing is going to sell. Because everyone's like, oh, let's see how he gets out of it. It's the exciting part of it. Mm. But within that, I'm like, you know what? Let's not play it safe. Let's take a character and see how he gradually changes through each loops. And that was the key with Zoohead. From Charlie becoming this very narcissistic, self-centered drug addict to at the end just redeeming himself, going, you know what? I'm letting it all go. And then there's that last shot of the movie. Not to give it all away, but there's that beautiful last shot of the movie where he's just looking at the sunset. And people have looked into that, you know, like, you know, what happens at the end of the movie? You know, spoiler alert. But, you know, is he dead? Does he die? And, you know, it's something that the lead actor, Daniel Mardi, who's, who's friggin' amazing in the film. Oh. oh, my God. He, the way he kind of encapsulates that kind of drug-fueled persona, it's just... There's, there's certain films w- that you watch and like the, the lead person or one of the characters is meant to be a drug addict and you're just like, I don't buy that. I, I can't sit, they just didn't seem like a druggie to me. But yeah, Daniel really just seemed to personify Charlie. It, it was so good. But the interesting thing, you start off the film kind of just there and no explanations no these are the relationships this is what this is even oh this is a druggie like it was just like (gasps) what's happening like did you think that might be a problematic intro like did you think maybe we should set out who these people were what was the kind of thinking around that it was intentional that was intentional because that, again it's a reflection of real life that i think the problem with a lot of screenwriting is that you start off with once upon a time yeah. Yeah, 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 you yeah. don't need that you start right dead smack in the middle these characters already exist we're just seeing a window a fragment of their life we come in as the audience and watch that these characters have existed from from the beginning so starting straight off with megan and charlie on the brink of their relationship breaking was the perfect point it was the perfect meeting place to kind of introduce the film but through that i mean the film spends about 40 minutes introducing the characters you know it spends it takes a lot of time with charlie and megan and then barton and charlie mm. and then charlie going to the welfare office and then charlie going to infinity and by then it's 40 minutes until the first loop happens so you've got a massive chunk of an 80 minute movie half of the 80 minutes 
movie, minute movie dealing with character but it's the way it's been done is that I didn't do it like once upon a time there was Charlie and he's yeah. walking around it was like no let's start them right smack in the middle because that's the severity of Charlie's problems he is in the deep of it and and it was it was to show it I mean what a what a pathetic way of showing it that the first shot is of him on his kitchen floor passed yeah. out covered in vomit and his girlfriend bless her she's she's trying to help but that again that's a reflection mm. of real life that's and this is a credit to dan because when i was when you're doing a film that's no budget and you can't pay anyone everyone's working on deferred payment or expenses only you don't and it's not to discredit actors but you don't expect well you know I'm not paying them how much how how dedicated will everyone be yeah. Bec and but I was really blessed 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 with this cast and crew you know Dan came in and I remember because I was looking at other actors and and you could sense there was this well I'll just wear baggy clothes like couldn't really care less some actors would just ask me well is there any way i could get paid for it mm. dan was and i knew dan i think a few months before like july we met in july for another project and i knew in the back of my head but it was like you know god inside him was saying he's the guy he's the guy but i was just ignoring that i was like no we need a name we need someone to sell this film <laughs> And Dan, bless him, he was always, you know, he was trying his best to, like, I, I really want to audition for Navin. I really want to do this. And I just gave, and I was like, okay, you know what, send me something. And he sent this audition, and it just blew my mind. I was like, he's Charlie. And then we met up months later. So he went off. I went off. I was, t I, I, you know, gave him the part. I, I was there kind of polishing up the script. And we had our first official director, lead actor meeting. And we met in King's Cross Station, and I walked past him. <laughs> and and I, I shit you not, and this is not me trying to like do a film story here, but I actually didn't recognize him. And he was like, Navin, Navin! He was like, what, you gave up on me already? And I was like, oh my God. And the guy <laughs> lost like 20 kg. Like he just stopped eating. And he went to visit like real drug addicts. He went to spend time with them. And Dan, this is someone that doesn't even drink, right? And he's so healthy and he works and he trains. I mean, Dan's a really big guy in real life and all that muscle, everything gone, gone. And I was like, oh shit, what have I done? <laughs> but he was committed. He was he was like the like Christian Bale and the machinist. The guy was not eating on set. He oh was my eating. God. Because see, this is the thing. Like sometimes you have actors in a big budget film and you hear what they're making and they're meant to be like a physical specimen and you're just like have they when was the last time they went to the gym when reagan was in office you know what i mean it was a bit like what's happening here and it's just like you don't see that level of commitment so for someone to do that when they're yeah essentially not making a, a huge paycheck you know that's that's impressive and then that must put pressure on you because if if this cat's come in like that out the gate now you're like oh this film needs to you know what I, mean? I need to bring my top game i need to be on point now but he was very committed from you know I think not even when he knew he had the part. I think the guy was committed even from when he read the script. That's how mm. much of a... He's a testament to acting. And I, I know that's a bold thing to say, but he really is because every single day on set, this guy was in character. 
and and he was always searching searching he was always probing wanting to know what makes charlie tick and charlie is someone that has to deal with you know child abuse issues you know like his father abusing him and physically abusing him and he had to put himself in that mind state and it's you know for the the commitment if if dan didn't commit to that part the film wouldn't be what it is you know because it wasn't it was an actor-led film and that's to say with husina raja uh with brian potter jr those three that my my trinity you know Zack snyder has batman superman <laughs> wonder woman i have daniel amadi husina raja and brian potter jr um they were they were a testament because they complemented each other and they barely met you know, Brian, Brian was cast last minute because he was, and, and Daniel will tell you this, he was the hardest part to cast. He was the hardest part to cast because Barton was, we needed a character for him. We needed someone who, who wasn't going to give us a Tyler Durden kind of uh, ripoff, who's someone who was in himself, like who understood the, the, the philosophy that he was trying to impart with Charlie. Yeah. Um, and Brian just came in and just was himself. Like he just from day one, the guy as soon as the guy walked in through the door, was like, "That's him, that's him." Like it's it, and it was kismet. It was it was fated, man. I mean, it was. I, I couldn't be so much more blessed. From day one, things were coming into this movie. It was like, it was meant to be. Even the location, the house um, that we shot it in, uh, the the Charlie where Charlie lives, that place is in Bethnal Green, and I found it online. Contacted the 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 owner. And it was all great. It was like, because for me, I was like, I remember telling Felix, my DOP, this, if we don't get the house, and this was long before Dan came into the picture, I was like, if we don't get the house and the right cost, I'm not doing this film. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm going to yeah, take yeah. that money and I'm going to go to Hawaii or something. Like, <laughs> do something nice. <laughs> you know, tempting fate there, tempting God. And then, and then I was like, and then the house came through. I was like, oh man, I guess I'm making this film. <laughs> And and the house came through, and I visited it, and it was it is literally what you see in the movie, right, right, down to T. It's literally what you see, and and then I think about a few weeks to go to shoot the movie, the owner disappeared, oh. and I was like, oh no! And then I actually went to look at a substitute house somewhere mm-hmm. in Hackney, and it was all right, but it wasn't. It didn't have the characteristic yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was, but something Simon was like, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. And then literally, I think a week, no, two weeks to go or something, she was like, oh, I was just on holiday, sorry, I just didn't see your emails. Of course the house is yours. And I was like, Phew. But it was, the house was a nightmare to shoot in because of nothing to say with the owner, but it was it was just pretty much, you can imagine what it smells like. And, mm. And and yeah, the and look of, and, and that's without the meat. <laughs> I was gonna say the meat added. It was like, it was nice. And and Daniel, poor Daniel, had to put his face in that meat on the kitchen floor. And the washing machine was broken, so there was this smell of like bad putrid water. And and it was like Dan had to put up with that every day. And me, I think me being a direct, being the director, being the producer on the project, because you're so in the zone, you're like, what smell? <laughs> Because you don't, you're so stressed out over other things. You're like, I don't smell a single thing, and everyone's like, he must be crazy. Um, but the the crew, we we had a we had a laugh making this film. I had so much fun doing it, and I think because a lot of the guys on the movie were actually sci-fi fans too. Right, right. And I remember one day just catching like 
you know, several of the crew members going through the script and g asking genuine questions like, is he in a loop and what's going on? I was like, that's great. Like mm. the people who are actually involved in the film are actually interested in the story. Um, and, and that's rare because you, especially when you're making a no budget film, and I know you can get all like cheesy and cliche about it, oh, but everyone's a family. And it's like, come on, look, yeah. you know what? No, not everyone's a family. It is a business at the end of the day. You're trying to make a movie. It's filmmaking. It's not family. It's yeah. not the Brady Bunch, okay? I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never buy it. You know when Vin Diesel's like, yo, everyone in the fast, fast and furious, we're family. That's what it is. You know, it's a brotherhood. Yeah. You get paid more than us, Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you can say it's a family. <laughs> Give us some bread. Uh, but no, it, it's like, I think there has to be a glue that gels, that kind of bonds everything together. And I know they say, well, that glue has to come from the director and producer. And that is true. You are the nucleus. I mean, you know, a, a set that has a, a, a tyrant of a director will never work, you mm. know. And, and making a budget film, that's especially so. You have to... You have to, everyone has to have a shared interest. What are we trying to do? And, and you know, with Zoohead, I walked in, I had storyboarded literally, and I do this probably because I'm obsessive compulsive and probably because I'm a great warrior. I used to be a great warrior, but I'll storyboard every single shot down to right. a T. Like I know exactly, because with no budget, you don't have time. Yeah. You know, you're going in, you're like, okay. And you even have your, your um, plan B shots. So you're going with this big wad of a book and, and, you know, everyone will come and look at this book and go, oh, wow, like everything's planned out. And you're working with a great DOP like Felix. He'll, you know, he brings his own uh, flavor to it. And and it just becomes like every everything is kind of organized. You have to have it as organized as possible. And, there's, and, and that's when it starts to grow. That's when it starts to grow. That's when, when everything's in place, when you've got all the locations, everything's, and you have to, you know, you have to count for like bad days. Like I, the only bad day we actually had, and everyone on the, on the set will agree with this, was the beach day. Ah. Um, because it was the only location day we had and, and everyone had to turn up at like a train station at like five, four in the morning to travel to <laughs> East Sussex somewhere. Canberra Sands, that was it. And, and we got there and it rained from eight till four o'clock close to like a couple of hours oh, to go for yeah. magic hour and so we had two hours to do eight scenes and i was like the the i don't know the power of god almighty inside of me was like i know exactly what i do and literally that last shot of the movie with dan looking into the sunset which is the for me personally is one of the most beautiful shots in the film that's me grabbing felix by the shoulder going please grab that sun like dan stand here felix go over his shoulder <laughs> And, and he did it. And, and this is, you know, again, testament to Felix. He's very, he's such a good DOP. He's an artist. The guy's an artist. And the colors, and he got it. You know, from day one, I was like, this is, the film for me was like a love letter to David Fincher. I love Fincher's films. And, and not that you want to rip off, obviously you can't rip off David Fincher, but it was almost what if Zoo had existed in that same grounded world? Because, again, I was going for a ground of reality, you yeah. know, that you could, almost a reality of, you could walk into a NHS clinic and go, I want my memory looped, and that was the idea. It was NHS meets Apple, you know, that you could walk into an Apple store, get your phone fixed, you could walk into Infinity, get your brain fixed. And because I think life is kind of going that way anyway, I think people think that the future is like Back to the Future Part 2, where it's like, oh, 2000, it's so yeah. it's so... 
it's so polished, you know. But no, the future is probably going to be more like Robocop. And oddly enough, we're probably living now in Robocop future, you know, that mm. apart from, you know, a dead body walking around in a tin suit. <laughs> but it's getting there. Don't know oh, what yeah. don't know what Trump's going to do with that. <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at one point. Hey, we're resurrecting a dead guy. Um, but, you know, it, it's it was very plausible. It, it had to be a very plausible future. And I think as a as a filmmaker, when you're dealing with sci-fi, that's the service you have towards your audience. You're using a genre that can exploit but honor those themes of, you know, of questioning mankind, questioning humanity, you know, exploring that future possibility because sci-fi is the only genre that can do that. You know. Yeah. Do you ever run into people kind of questioning it though because you know i think when you say sci-fi people automatically think rockets and jet boots and yeah that but you see certain films that are sci-fi like another film that showed at sci-fi london after the lethargy and like yours it was very grounded and there was just a few little things in it that let you know oh this is kind of the future this is sci-fi and i kind of feel those type of films are a bit more powerful because like i think rocket ships and all of that is it's not that inventive yeah it's more escapism but to think how will technology sink into the real world how will that look like that takes real thought and imagination that was i i you know it's like sci-fi has so many subgenres, right like so star wars is escapism and then something like uh robocop is is more uh, symbolic you know and then you've got midway something like blade runner which uses has, has this beautiful mix of escapism elements but then it's also very grounded and with you know if you and i think this is where it was a challenge because if you turn around to someone and you go i have no money okay i want to make a movie all right and then you automatically think friends are going to get around an iphone and make a movie and it's like nope i want to make a sci-fi movie and they're like you must be crazy what are you going to do and then it's like the powers in the narrative you know for me the the the, the sci-fi element in zoohead is very small it's just infinity it's just a clinic mm. where oh we have this really cool looking headset plop it on the guy's head but it's the story that it's it's how this guy gets out the loop the whole thing in itself the structure is the sci-fi component as opposed to let's put special effects oddly enough i think halfway through the post-production that i kind of it was it was an it was an unreasonable insecurity that kind of came and go well maybe we are lacking sci-fi elements and i kind of tapped my vfx artist shaquille shamshad and I said to him, can you put some like looping holograms on Charlie's face when he gets looped? And he was like, okay. And he did it and it looked all right. And I was like, you know what? This robs it of that grounded sci-fi that I originally intended. So we dismissed that. And if you look hard enough, there is like probably a trail out there that has like the, the, the hologram effects. Right, right. But it, it didn't suit that world. Um, it, it just it, it was this gut instinct it was like if you again it's about committing when you have an original sto- when you when you set out to make a film right from the bat you need to know exactly what that vision is going to be and mm. what you commit to and anything that deviates from that 
you're screwed. Like putting a hologram effect in a film that was supposed to be grounded sci-fi from the beginning, it will just mess up with the audience. And that's why I took it out and it didn't didn't work at all. So right from the bat, you know, everything had to be, you know, it looked it looked kind of broken and used. Like the headset was kind of like it had to, it looked awkward. It yeah. looked like someone j just put it together. And that was a love of kind of Philip K. Dick, because if you read Philip K. Dick's books, they're all like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the technology is very, very kind of analog, yes. you know? Yeah, it, it, it's not overly polished, I think. And that's the um, that's the really good thing. It's but it make that makes it feel plausible. Yeah. And I think that was the thing about your film. It seemed plausible. You know, I kind of, I think I said it was like Groundhog Day. Oh, what did that? Train spotting and eternal sunshine for the spotlight mind. I might throw in human traffic to that as well. But yeah, it, it, it kind of, it didn't feel like something I'd seen before. And I think that's important, you know? And I think it's important, especially with like a low budget indie film that you're seeing something that gives you pause. And it's just like, oh yeah, Disney made something like this like last year, you know? But um, when you're making, when you're creating through the different stages, is there any thought to like, has this been done before? Have I seen this before? Or, oh, I should change that character because they're very similar to blah, blah, blah. Or, or you know, like um, you, you mentioned like Tyler Durden with Barton. I think there's all, I think whatever film you make, there's always going to be that concern as an, ooh, is it too much like this? Is it too much like that? Um, but then that's where you dig into your personal experiences when you put a film together. Because no, you can't copy personal experiences. That comes from you. With Charlie, it was his relationship with his father. That was something I dug into my personal relationship with my father. And it was like, you know what? I'm approaching Charlie from a very personal point of view. I'm not a drug addict, but it was very much... I've worked with drug addicts in my day job, and I've seen their pain. And I was like... It's almost like I wanted to give that character a hurdle to get over and it had to be quite, it had to be cinematic in a way, something that you could visually see that this is a guy that isn't eating, he's, he's taking drugs, he's a mess. Um, and in terms of it resembling other films, you're inspired by other films to begin with. And oddly enough, the for a sci-fi movie, my very first inspiration for this was Requiem for a Dream, which isn't a sci-fi film at all. Um, and, and it's weird how Dan actually, there's a slight resemblance with him and Jared Leto's character in yeah, that movie. No, like, I, very, I, yeah. very it, weird. Like, it's funny. You said, as soon as you said Requiem, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And you do, I think, especially in that film, as it went on and Jared gets deeper and deeper, he's really a bit like Charlie. You know, because there's scenes like, I want to get better. But then, like, when he's in the machine, like, Wait, where am I? Take me out of here! I can't do this! I can't do this! And you get those like frenetic moments. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's it's. 
I, it was less for me. Zoohead was less of when I was putting it together. I was not thinking of it as a sci-fi movie. I knew that he had to because I was looking for. I want this character to go through a very deep cathartic journey, and I need him to revisit elements of his past, force him into these, to, uh, to bring his journey in a way that you couldn't normally do. You know, so make him revisit fragmented memories. So I thought well, that's where the sci-fi element comes in. Well, let's invent a machine that's able to put him in and out. But apart from that, the rest of the movie is purely character-driven. It's all about, like you said, you know, he's and and it's the mentality of someone who is who is an addict. You know, they're they're getting better, they're getting better, and suddenly it's like no, and they refuse the healing and they just pull back. So it's constant backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and backwards and forwards is being in a loop, and that and and it just everything started coming together. It was like it makes sense for this character to be a drug drug addict who's stuck in a loop that's driven by sci-fi. Um, and you know, we when we were making the movie, Dan and I and and the rest of the cast, we barely spoke about the technology of Infinity. It wasn't the concern. It was always about what do these characters want? Who are they? You know, what what is going on in Charlie's brain? Does he actually want to get better? Mm. You know, is that you know, it's 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 something that you a lot of addicts, some of them genuinely want to get better. It's a demon that sits on their shoulder, and it's like you know what I. I, and they're crying and, and it's painful. Some addicts, on the other hand, when you confront them, they're, they're very proud. They're very boastful. They say, I don't care. I'm going to die tomorrow. I don't give a crap. And it's like, you're how far? It, the question is, how far are you lost? And that's what I was playing with with Charlie. It's constantly like backwards and forwards. So, and, 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 and there was a concern in the beginning because I, I know some people read the script going, he is such an asshole. Like, as soon as the screen opens, he's like swearing at his pretty girlfriend. You know, he's got this beautiful girlfriend. What is he doing? Like, and she wants to get him for him to get better. And will the audience sympathize? And I was like, watch, because he needs to be an asshole because we'll watch that gradual descent into madness into he has to go to hell in order to get better and he does that it's very much like what if patrick bateman got better <laughs> you know not that not that charlie's as crazy as patrick bateman but it's almost i guess it's the same question can you relate to how do you make a character like patrick bateman relatable you know but the filmmakers in that film and, and Brett Eston Ellis in the book, you, you find something, you know. And it's always a challenge when you're dealing with characters that are addicts, that are, you know, they're not the wholesome characters. Yeah. You know, they're not handsome. We're, we're not all Luke Skywalker, you know. <laughs> but those are the real characters. We, we Those are real people. And that's how you approach it. It's an observation of life. You know, that's, that's how I approach Zoohead, each of those characters. And I think with, you know, Sorry, I went off on tangent there. But characters like Barton, I th there was something of, ooh, is he too much like Tyler Durden? Did I get carried away? And it was the reason... The, the psychology of Zoohead is this. You've got Barton, uh, and here's another big spoiler alert, that Megan and Barton don't exist, and they're extensions of his psyche. So this is something that all three actors and I constantly spoke about. Well, what parts of the psyche? Because now you have to dig deep. So you've got Charlie, who's the id, 
Barton, who's the super ego, and Megan, who's the ego. So Barton is the super ego, as in I'm I'm divine, I'm godlike. Mm. So I'm the overseer. So everything that he expressed had to be hugely philosophical, hugely symbolic of life. So it was natural that his dialogue had to be very symbolic, very almost like thematic. So there was hidden codes in what he spoke. So he's and it, his dialogue was very enigmatic right from the beginning. And then Megan was like, you need to get better. She was the voice of reason. She's the voice of ego. You need to get better. And Charlie's it, very primal, you know, just wants to get wasted and, and shitting himself on that kitchen floor. And that's it. So yeah. you've got the three very distinct elements of the, psy- uh, of the psyche that glue together and make Charlie's whole personality. Um, and in that, Barton was going to be someone who was the super ego, was very much. And then, th- then you kind of look and you go, well, yeah, there's similarities with Tyler Durden. But the thing, the main, I mean, he's so not Tyler Durden that, that Tyler Durden is an anarchist. Mm. Barton, in some way, despite him being an ass half the time, he does care for Charlie and he wants Charlie to get better. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of playing around with that, a lot. There's. As you said, like before, this is definitely a very character-driven film. And how is it... Because, look, you're you're doing your casting, you're trying to find the right actor or actress. And so it's someone that can deliver these lines and interact with Charlie. But then there's also these... I, like they're not monologues, but they're kind of these heartfelt kind of statements that these characters are saying. Yeah. And I think not every actor can deliver those. So how was how was that? Trying to find people that can interact but then also deliver these powerful messages that kind of resonate through the film. That is purely a testament to Dan Hussein and Brian. These guys are very, very, very good actors. They're probably the best actors I've worked with. They, um, they have, it, it was this thing of, here's the script now, and this is how I always approach dialogue and text as, an, as a director. Here's the script, make it your own make it your own like even if like there's some lines you can't change because they they explain narrative and 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 it's symbolic of this and that blah 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 but overall i want you to organically make it your own you give the actor freedom and 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 once you give them the keys depending on the actor they're going to be a good steward of that Mm -hmm. and these three guys were very good stewards and you're talking you know look at the uh, look at the circumstances being against them a no-budget movie, you know, they didn't have trailers, <laughs> and and they had very little time for prep. We met up, I think, for a couple of weeks before for like read-throughs and rehearsals, but there was nothing, nothing kind of concrete to rehearse, and and they had very little time for prep. But every every morning or every every time before we shot a scene, we all huddled together and we would discuss like, what is your character objective? What's your super objective in the scene? What do you want to do? So there was this constant psychological approach to every single character motive. Like, why is Barden saying this? What's happening here? Um, but it is, it's. And I think that comes in the, you know, finding the right actor of the part. Yes, it comes in the casting of it, in the auditions. Um, and you're always looking for believability. You're always looking for believability. And do these 
do I believe this performance? You know, does it hit? Does it hit me? You know, because you're right. There's some scenes that my favorite scene in terms of emotional arc is when Charlie. I think this is Loop Two when he comes back and he's in the hospital robe, and he goes upstairs and he has that scene with Megan. And you know, I remember watching Dan prep for that scene. I mean, I'm getting tearful now thinking about it, but he was in a state, dude. Like. If he was Christian Bell and I went and tapped on his shoulder, he probably would have punched me. You know, not not that Christian Bell. I don't know Christian Bell. You know, I love you, Christian Bell, <laughs> but but um, but no, no, he was intense. He was uh, he was he was as intense as Christian Bell, and 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 you know that he was in an emotional place. And then Megan and Hussein is like somewhere else on set, and she's prepping. And they just come and they have this immediate report, and that's just a testament to those two actors. You know. Um, they really understood the character. And that's when you have a good actor, that not only did they do well in the auditions, but they're constantly probing. You know, that's what makes a good actor. They're a researcher. Mm -hmm. They'll come up to the writer, the director, and go, well, why, why is this here? They will ask questions. They will ask questions in terms of even the vision. Like, what's it going to look like? And they're constantly curious, you know. Like my cat, always curious. <laughs> like, what's that, Navin? <laughs> Mind your business. But um, no, but they're in a good way. They're, and that's a, that's a sign of a healthy actor. They want to know. They're constantly exploring uh, because they're like sponges. They will seep up everything. Yeah. Uh, and they will wonder to work. It was like being on a playground, man. This wasn't work for me. Oh, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Um, what I was wondering, though, uh, I know you talked about the casting earlier, but when you were making this film, because, you know, like Daniel and Hassana, um, you know, and um, Brian, you like, you realized that they were perfect for the roles. Yeah. But what was your actual vision for those characters? Like, did you have a, an actual vision and voice that those characters had or was it just you saw them and they were right or did they did, did did they kind of mirror this vision you had in your head i i had archetypes in mind for each of these characters what they represent mm. but knowing that it was an actor driven movie i was completely open to what uh, what the characters could look like any race um any any body type but for me it was more that would an actor suit the archetype that i'm trying to create through the characters so you know going back to charlie who had to be someone that could embody that id idea uh, megan had to be someone an actress that could uh, embody the, the voice of reason yeah. and barton had to embody someone who was so laid back so chill so cool but at the same time embody super ego so you had to find an actor, like taking Barton, for example, which is probably the hardest part to cast. You need an actor that was the, the definition of cool, like mm. almost Patrick Swayze-esque, but at the same time had the brain of like a god. Yeah. And, and that's a tough call. And that, that's why it was the hardest part to cast, because you had a lot of actors that either one had the brain of a god, <laughs> but lacked coolness, you know. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and 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 it's it's you kind of think of it on paper. It's like, well, that's going to be easy to cast. And then when it mm. comes to it, you have all these great actors that you know, good actors, you know, coming in, auditioning their socks off, and and they're doing a great job. But it was almost we need to cast that archetype, 
Uh, and that's something I've learned, not only for this film, but all other films I've kind of worked on, that it is so crucial that you cast an actor that thematically fits in to the entire vision you're trying to create. Because they could be a very good actor, but if they're wrong for the role, that role can't be theirs. Yeah. You know, And thankfully, I was so blessed with these actors, to the point that I know a lot of people have come up to me and said, oh, if you get a big budget, would you remake it? Would you cast Tom Cruise as, as Charlie? <laughs> and I'm like, I generally, and this is not me trying to flatter the actors on this, but I would struggle to recast it. Um, because I can't see anyone but Daniel Armadi as Charlie, anyone but Husina Raja as Megan and Brian Potter Jr. as Barton. I mm. couldn't. And and that's where I smile because I realize they've done their job. Yes. You know, other films I've worked on, I'm like, yeah, maybe I could get so-and-so to play them in a you know, remake or reboot. But but with this one, no. This one, it, it's... and and But it took time. And I knew, again, it, it was like, if I didn't get the house, I wouldn't make the film. If mm. I didn't get the perfect cast, especially at Trinity, I wouldn't make the film. Um, it was either make or break. But make and break for the right things. You know, yes. a lot of filmmakers go, well, if I don't get the budget to make the special effects, the film can't happen, can it? And it's like, no. For me, it was like the heart of the story. If the script isn't right, if the script doesn't make sense, if the actors aren't right aren't the right one for the roles and if we can't get the location that's it we're calling it quits everything else just came together uh -huh. oh that's that's great man like it really does sound like a really interesting process and stuff like that but i'm kind of curious because so you know because this is the second film yeah. right so you know i think as just individuals as we go through life, it's all about evolving, you know, and kind of learning from the lessons we've learned from our previous things. So what are the things that are really, and the, uh, there's probably a lot, but what are the main things that are really kind of s jumped out and helped you grow as a filmmaker from like your first and then this and even doing the shorts? You need to really enjoy what you're doing. I know it sounds so cliche and so obvious, but sometimes as filmmakers, you can get stuck and think, I need to make this film to prove to the world that I'm a broken artist or, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or, or that I'm, I'm really a good human being or whatever. And it's like, come on, cut the crap. You, you, you make films because you love films. You know, and, and, and with Zoohead, it was like, I want to make a good, grounded sci-fi movie, and that's it. And my original intention was to self-distribute. I was like, no one's giving me the money to do it. I don't care. I'm going to go off, save my money, do it, just like I did with my first feature, and I'll just release it quietly and silently, job done, and I can grow old and be happy. And I didn't expect two years later being picked up by Movie House, Q Media, Hulu, iTunes, you know, and, and it's just crazy. But that all came because I kept, although the vision was big, I kept the process as humble and small as mm. I could. I didn't let it explode. My ego was outside. It was out of the equation. And I think sometimes we make films because we want to impress people. Because it's like, I've got to make a film because I need to get to Sundance, right? I mean, obviously, <laughs> duh, I need to get discovered. And you realize, why can't you just make a film just for the enjoyment of making yeah. the film? You know, I'm pretty sure that's how Marvel functions. You know, you can sense the joy when, you know, when Marvel make their films. They, their fans are their own work. 
And that's and we become fans of that. And it's the same with me with Zoohead. I'm a fan of it. It's the first film I've I, I can honestly say it's probably the first film I've made where I'm looking forward for it to come out on Blu-ray so I can sit back and actually watch it. And it's kinda hard for a filmmaker to watch their own work. But with Zoohead it's it's one of those films that sometimes when I'm stuck in the edit, I'll just watch it. Because it's the actors, you know, even though I know their performances inside out, it's almost like surprising. Yeah. You become a fan of your own work. And that's the lesson I've learned. You need to you need to become a fan of your own work. Stick by your guns. Have faith. Faith is a big deal. You can get bogged down by budget and stuff. Things will come if you really I know it sounds very cliche again, but you really need to believe in yourself, man. Big time. To to an abnormal level to like yeah. the world's gonna look at you and go you must be crazy trying to make a film like that but you, you know you've planned it you know you faith isn't about being oh i'm faith and it's like being in a fairy tale and it will happily ever come no you need to plan you know faith faith without work is dead yeah. and you need to you need to make sure it is planned and faith with organization boom you're done finish that you, you've got your film you know no that's great but okay so <laughs> If, like, well, when? When it comes out on Blu-ray, right? Directors, is there going to be a director's cut? And will there be a director and actor commentary? Um, director's cut, no, because we <laughs> use literally every single scene, every footage. Look, you don't say that. Tease them. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a Zoo Head 2, Zoo, zoo, zoo Header, I don't know. Uh There'll probably be more. I don't know. Zoo <laughs> That's a good ass title. Um, in terms of com, I would love to do a commentary with the actors. I would love to. I love for them to do a commentary because mm. they're so intelligent and just to listen to them. I love Dan Husina and Brian to just have their own track and to sit down and talk about the process. Even listening at Sci-Fi London when they were doing the Q and A. Listening to them even years later talk about their character, I was like, wow, these guys still remember their performances and are still in it. But, yeah, I love to do director's commentary. I guess, you know, it, it just helps the process, doesn't it? it uh, anything I could help, because I know there's so many people out there who are just like me, who are trying to make no-budget films and make them work. And I've been so blessed to get into Sci-Fi London, you know, and get Hulu and all that. These things rarely happen. So any wisdom that I can kind of give out, yeah. It would work. Nice. And um, <clears throat> now that it's on Hulu, you know, Hulu iTunes, is that kind of it for Zoo Head? And now it's focusing on other things or is there still things that you want to do with Zoo Head before it's all said and done? Oh, no, no, no. I think like, you know, we've still got other territories to look at, like the UK, especially the UK and other parts of the world. So I know Movie House and Q Media will deal with that and, and you know, look at releasing it there and then. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I'm working on other stuff. I've got a couple of projects uh, that I can't. I know this sounds so cliche, right? I can't really talk about it. Um, <laughs> but I can't actually talk about them. Uh, but it's exciting times. It's exciting times that I get to look at Zoohead and see that kind of being released to the world. And at the same time, I'm still in that nurturing period of, of looking after other projects. So, yeah. Great stuff. Okay. Um, where can people find... Um, yeah, where can people like follow what you're doing and all of that kind of thing? 
Um, so yeah, for any update on Zoo Head, there's the website, which is www.zoo-head. A lot of people forget the dash, the hyphen, <laughs> uh, dashhead.com. Uh, there's also my production company, which is 1406 Pictures, uh, and that's www.1406pictures.co.uk. Um, and yeah, also feel free to email. I love like and like you know, feel free to uh, email me any questions about the movie or uh, or anything. You know, any any other filmmakers out there wondering you know how to go through that process i mean they you can always contact me through, via the website but i'm more than happy to help out with anything that anyone needs um i know again very cheesy very cliche but it is you know we're all trying to make a story and put something together so i'm always on the lookout for anyone that needs help with anything uh but yeah uh, that's really yeah because I've, I've definitely met people that are like no, <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm like Don't you, me yeah. Famous. You know what I mean? It's, it's because that's the thing. It's kind of crazy. I remember I, I so I, I did some work in the music industry, yeah. and it was just like there. I remember working with a, a couple of black ladies, and they got pretty high. You know what I mean? They were doing well. They were known. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was a bit like you get up the ladder. Now you're kicking the ladder down. Uh, you know, it's not turning around and trying to help other people. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm here. You stay, stay back, stay back. And it's just like, it always seems like a weird mentality to me. So, yeah, it's nice that you, yeah, you, you're willing to help people if they need it. But um, 1406, where did that come from? <laughs> Why 1406, oh, not 1501? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, very quickly, 1406. A lot of people ask me, why did you get 1406? I grew up in, I was born in England, and I grew up in Mauritius for from ages 7 to 16. And in Mauritius, they had a really messed up system for, like, your O-levels. They would have every single kid compete. Every single kid on the island compete to be number one. So it would be like a national. So it was more like a competition amongst yeah. adults to see whose kid could come out number one. Uh, and and like when I... Academic Hunger Games? Yeah, it, it was <laughs> such a good way of putting it. It was an academic <laughs> Hunger Games, right? And it was really messed up. And like parents who didn't give a crap about their kids would be like, my kid's going to be number one or I'll kill him. And mm -hmm. I actually used to hear that, like, I'm going to kill my kid if they don't come oh, out number shit. one. And uh, I came out 1,406. And I remember that day and my mum and dad, my mum, my I mean, she was all right with it, but my dad was in shock and he kept staring because they printed it in the newspaper. It was no. on the front cover. It oh was proper no. Hunger Games. And they were like, Navin Suku, which is my, my official surname, like Navin Suku, 1,406. And my dad just sat there the whole of Sunday morning or whatever day it was going, 1,406. 1406 and it just burnt in my psyche and i was like one day i'm gonna do something with that number and here i am years later dad <laughs> so you reclaimed the number I know. I know. <laughs> oh that's brute because it's my number <laughs> put it in the news <laughs> i know they put it in the newspaper but here's the creepy really quickly here's the creepy story the kid i think the kid that came out number one or one of the top tier kids mm. actually went insane and, and I'm not joking, because I used to be friends with him. And mm. he, he started getting up on Sundays and putting his school clothes on and going to school and standing outside the gate. And his parents couldn't stop him. And I think he tried to nail his hand 
to like something. He 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 lost it basically, and it was no joke because I heard this and I was like, haha, that's funny. He was like, no, he actually went Dulali, <laughs> and I was like, wow, it it's it saves to be a bit dumb. <laughs> Damn, but yeah, I you know what I can see it because putting all that pressure. It's like, because you know what I mean? Because it's then the mentality, right, I've got to stay there. I've got to stay there. I've got to, you know, keep impressing all these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it goes back to what we're talking about, film, that you just, you, you know, you're a filmmaker, but at the end of the day, you don't live and die by film. You have a life. And I know you have to treat it like it is. It, it doesn't mean you have to do it in a cold way, but it is a job at the end of the day. And you can't. You can't take it to bed with you, you know, mm. like you, because where else are you going to get your life experiences from to make those films? You need a life, you know. I mean, even if your life is like mine with, you know, living with a cat, there's still experiences in that. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, I, I do have friends, but uh, <laughs> I have a very romantic life. Um, <laughs> very happy, very pleased. Um, but no, you yeah, you your your film is your work, you know, and but it's a work that you're impassioned by. But it's not your life; it doesn't define your life. Mm. Yeah, no, that that definitely that's very true, man. Um, hey, I've, I've I've kept you for so long. I've this has been a really interesting conversation, and I really appreciate your time. But I realize. I did get your name wrong at the beginning. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it's not Nevin. <laughs> everyone, everyone kind of, I've had everyone call me anything. I think it's kind of nice we got the name wrong because we're going to set the record now because everyone gets my name wrong. My celebrity crush, she, she got my name wrong. She called me Naveen, and that, that was heartbreaking. Sitting with my celebrity crush that I've had for years, and those who know me know who that celebrity crush is. Um, but after meeting her and, and like half an hour meeting, it was like, Naveen, Naveen. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> no, it's Navin. It's like Gavin, but with an N. So you can't lose it now. And it's not Gavin. It's Navin. I had someone call me Mervin the other day, <laughs> which is the worst name. I mean, at least I didn't say that. No, no. Yeah. Or Marvin. They're like, well, Marvin knows the answer to this one. So it's Navin. And Navin Dev. Dev as in, I hate to say devil, but like, yeah, Dev as in devil, Dev, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Devlin, yeah. So Navin Dev, but uh, yeah, I've had it's it's people. It's it's as it's written. But I think getting your name wrong is kind of flattering, and everyone gets Gal Gadot's name wrong, and she's hot. So I'm guessing Navin Dev, he's hot. So <laughs> we'll get his name wrong too. Hot people get their names wrong. No one ever pronounces my name wrong. Please <laughs> <laughs> change it. <laughs> Change your name. Change your name and you'll be fine. Change your name and then you automatically hotness. I mean, no, they always pronounce it the other way around. That's what people always do with my name. No, Scott. Yes. So they call me. Even when I sign off, I'm like. Best wishes, Kevin. So then uh, the follow the reply will be, "Hello, Scott. Thank you for." And he's like, "Huh? What?" <laughs> I remember as because I trained as an actor. I remember going to see this photographer back. This is ages ago when I after I came out of drama school, which was a very pleasant experience. 
<laughs> but and then I went to a photographer and throughout the whole thing he was calling me by my surname like and it wasn't it was my my official my official surname is Suku but I just used Navin Dev for sure and he kept calling me Suku this Suku that and it was like so impersonal mm. like when you use a surname yeah, 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 yeah. um it is weird <laughs> yeah I don't know why I tell that story but yeah <laughs> <laughs> on that note people <laughs> I know. anyway we could talk forever it's been fun oh man it re- w- when the new film is is done yes. we need to um talk about yeah, that yeah. but people all the information all the social media the website all of that is going to be in the information of this web of this episode so um definitely check it out and um if you haven't seen it, check out Zoohead, people. You will not regret it. All right? That is it for another episode. Peace. Okay, so, yeah, hope you enjoyed the episode and um, everything that Navin had to say. Uh, so now gonna end with a little bit of film news and then we're bouncing so um the other day some some actual information on the new james bond film came out like first was the title no time to die um and we also get a little bit of breakdown of the film itself so in this new film bond 25 um bond is living a tranquil retirement life in jamaica one that's interrupted when u.s agent felix later shows up and asks for help to rescue a kidnapped scientist which puts bond on the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology um yeah so this is uh Daniel Craig's last Bond film. Um, also returning will be Ralph Fiennes as M, Leah Sadu as Dr. Madeline Swan, Naomi Harris as Money Penny, Ben Wilshaw as Q, Rory Kinner as Tanner, Jeffrey Wright as Felix, and there is word that Christopher Waltz will be reprising his role of Blowfield that we've seen in earlier editions. So we have that. Um, okay. Um, ah, so news came out the other day about the whole Sony Disney situation, right? And to be honest, okay, we've had kind of two slightly different stories one from disney one from sony it's essentially a breakdown on renegotiations of the new contract and if you remember we spoke about the original contract a few weeks back which said if um this second film didn't break a billion marvel were gonna be cut off anyway So the fact that they killed it and made Far From Home Sony's most successful film, I mean, that speaks volumes. 
So, you know, like supposedly, you know, Disney wanted to make it a 50-50 financing situation, which, you know, hey, in respect, it kind of makes sense from their point of view. And look, if they're going to be smashing a bit, because Disney, if the film makes a billion, Disney aren't making a big chunk of change from that. They're making money, no doubt. But they're not making as much for the effort that's put in, right? So, a renegotiation makes sense. But just because it's come out that you know, what I mean, they've they they they're separating the supposed as it's being touted the divorce. Uh, you know, what I mean, like Spider Man won't be in any MCU films, and no MC characters will be in Spider Man. Look, if everyone remembers, there was talk of Spider-Man coming to the MCU. That supposedly broke down. And then the deal actually happened. So, frankly, all of this is just still negotiations. Like, this doesn't mean that Marvel and Sony aren't going to work together on future Spider-Man. It doesn't mean that at all. So, hey... Um, let's just wait and see what happens. Because frankly, I just see this as negotiation tactics. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't think this is a, any sort of death kill right now. Okay? But, um, yeah, who knows? We'll see, right? So, um, sticking with Disney, they've set four dates for um four of their upcoming films so you've got um firstly you've got the woman in the window which stars amy adams now this film is directed from by joe wright and essentially it's about a new york city recluse who witnesses a shocking crime um and it is now due to be coming out on the 15th of May 2020. We've then got um, The Empty Man, which is a adaptation of Colin Bunn's comic book. Um, and it follows the FBI and CDC who enter a joint investigation of a disease-carrying cult. And this is due out on the 7th of August, 2020. Next is Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Um, and uh, this film is out on the 23rd of October, 2020. It's basically a film adaptation of a musical that is inspired by the true story of Jamie Campbell, a 16-year-old boy who lives in a council estate and doesn't fit in, but overcomes prejudice to wear a frock to his school prom. And finally, on the 28th of May 2021, the um, Cruella film is coming out which is a prequel to 101 Dalmatians um 
the film is directed by Craig Gillespie and it's going to be starring Emma Stone as a young Cruella uh, and also we've got Emma Thompson, Walter Hauser and Joel Fry in the film so we have that and um I guess one of the biggest, other than the Spider-Man situation, the biggest news of late is the fact that um, Warner Brothers, Village Roadshow Pictures, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss and Lana Wachowski are all getting back in bed to produce a fourth Matrix film. Yep. So Neo and Trinity are back. Um, yeah, no real um, like idea of the story is uh, n- nothing's out. But um, Lana did say many of the ideas Lily and I explored twenty years ago about our reality are even more relevant now. I'm very happy to have these characters back in my life and grateful for another chance to work with my brilliant friends. So, um, yeah, Wachowski is producing the film with Grant Hill and it's believed that, you know what I mean, the, the, the shoot will get underway early next year, 2020. So... That is it for this week, people. Um, we will be back next Thursday. Like the um, Tarantino review, I might drop it next week. But I have to make sure I don't have anything else that's meant to be coming. Uh, but, hey, enjoy your trips to the cinema. And I'll see you next week. Peace.